Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Slot Leader. I'm your host, Umed Saidov. For those of you who don't know me, I am a finance professional with more than a decade of experience. I'm a Cardano stake pool operator. I operate Skylight Pool, tickers Sky and Sky2. And I'm somebody who's followed this project closely since 2017. Some of you might know me as a person who writes articles about rewards. I've researched this particular topic extensively and have written numerous articles which you can find on Reddit. Slot Leader was created in order to bridge the gap between the traditional world of finance and the new world of digital assets and cryptocurrencies. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about this space in the traditional finance world. So if you are a financial professional or a business professional looking at the space for its potential, you might find something useful in our episodes. Conversely, if you are a Cardano enthusiast who would like to venture out of the technicalities of A0 or K factor or saturation and try to see a bigger picture, this podcast could also be for you. So each episode of Slot Leader has three segments. In the first segment, which covers the news, I take a look at the events that have happened in the blockchain industry as a whole and in Cardano community in particular and try to see their economic significance. In the second segment, which covers the markets, I analyze the market data in terms of prices and volumes and try to see if there are any underlying insights for traders. The purpose of the third segment is to go and do a deep dive analysis. We Each week we, t- we take a, um, a, a particular topic that we want to analyze in detail and, uh, and we might invite a guest or two to discuss a particular point that might be of interest to our viewers and the listeners alike. Now I would like to tell our viewers and listeners alike that the contents of this podcast are only for educational purposes, including the analysis that we do. I'm not a financial advisor and nothing that we say in this program constitutes financial, legal or tax advice. Now onto the news segment. I have to say there's never a dull day in cryptosphere, but this week um, there's at least two things that I would like to cover in detail in this in this segment. And the first one is um, the Catalyst project. Cardano launched the Catalyst fund, um, public fund, for the first time in the history of the of the project on September 15th. They wrote a detailed article on their blog on at, at, at iohk.io. Uh, you can you can read that and find out you know what what the details are. But I will give you um, a couple of uh, in, information that is critical for you to understand what it is and how it works. So, the Catalyst Project is a decentralized fund um, that um, has made two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of ADA available for projects that um, will be ultimately built on Cardano. Now, it has significance for two two perspectives. The first one is that it's the first time um, uh, the decentralized uh, treasury funds are being dispersed. The second one is that um, all those funds are going to be dispersed through a decentralized voting. Um, So effectively, you have Voltaire here, you know, happening right now. Um, So this marks the beginning of Voltaire as far as I can tell. Now, um, 
as far as the details go, I you know we we entered the uh, the exploratory sort of uh, challenge, and that started on on September sixteenth, and it will continue up until September twenty third. Let me actually share a screen with you where you can see all this stuff. So yes, so here, um, you know, in the exploratory challenge, um, we we basically uh, take a look at uh, what uh, kind of projects could make sense for this for this round of funding. Um, and, uh, and and then the next stage is going to be uh, a stage where we actually submit ideas. And that's going to start, I think, on the 23rd. Yeah. And uh, that's where, you know, if you have some idea that you think uh, is, is worth, uh, you know, um, getting funds for and, and building, you write it up. Uh, there is a form for that and, and submit it. And there's a stage of refining ideas, and then there's the stage of finalizing proposals, and then, you know, the final, final stage is the review, uh, proposal reviews. Um, and, uh, and, and, and people will vote on, on each and every um, project that gets, uh, you, know, uh, you know, to that stage. And, and, and whoever wins uh, the, uh, the, the money goes off and, and starts building. So um, I will put uh, the real relevant links uh, to the on, on the comments section um, of this video, so you could uh, go directly to the the web pages that, that that are necessary in order to uh, to learn about this project. But this is the gist of it. It's it's uh, it's a fascinating new uh, phase for Cardano, and and it's uh, I I can't I can't wait what it will bring for the community. I think it starts uh, you know the. The, the phase where um, we, we will start seeing some ecosystem, um, you know, developments. Now, the second thing that I would like to mention um, is the, the fact that Kraken got a, uh, a banking license. Um, I mean, it is a, uh, a very interesting and, and very significant news um, for the entire ecosystem um, because you know um, the, the the banking side of, of of cryptocurrency it has has always been challenging uh, for various reasons that we don't know about you know legal side or whatnot um, you know having a, a a bank account if you are involved in, in cryptocurrency has always been a, a, you know difficult now the fact that Kraken as an exchange the uh, cryptocurrency exchange has gotten a, a a banking license in the state of Wyoming. Um, clears a lot of hurdles for people and in, in their in the website uh, in the blog post they describe what what kind of entity it is and um, it's not a, a fully fledged bank oh I mean it is a fully fledged bank it's just that the entity itself is called um, special purpose depository institution if, if I can um, read it correctly yeah and uh, it's it's an institution that that has uh, you know to to keep the hundred percent of the reserves which means that you know, uh, for every dollar that you deposit, um, they they have to have that dollar in in their vaults, pretty much. Um, and, and maybe it, it actually means that they cannot make no uh, loans uh, as as a result. I mean, is they are not subject to the fractional banking in that respect. But regardless, I mean, the fact that we um, uh, the the community in the blockchain community actually has a, a way of of actually opening. Uh, a bank account directly with an institution, um, you know, depositing their uh, cash, um, withdrawing their cash without a, a, a problem and, and 
those deposits would be, um, uh, you know, uh, insured uh, up to 250000 um, is is a big step forward. Um, so I, I am uh, very happy that this has happened, and I think uh, it, it creates a lot of uh, um, good uh, precedence for the space as a whole. Currently, though, um, only the U.S. citizens are being served, and I think um, Kraken has plans to, to start serving every, everybody else internationally, too. Now, I would like to tell you a little bit about our guest today. For the first episode of Slot Leader, I thought it would be only appropriate to invite Charles Hoskinson to introduce Cardano to the wider audience of finance and business professionals. Now, for those of you who do not know, Charles Hoskinson is the CEO of IOG, which is a blockchain engineering company that created Cardano. Now, our interview today is filled with a lot of wisdom and interesting insights, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. I have uh, Charles Hoskinson here uh, today with us. Uh, he's uh, a known figure in the in the crypto market um, and uh, He's the, the, the co-founder of Ethereum and the founder um, of uh, IOG, which has created Car Cardano. Um, Charles, um, you are, again, an, a known figure in the blockchain space. Uh, but for those who, viewers who do not, uh, had, uh, did, did not have the pleasure of meeting you, uh, could you please uh, say a few words about yourself? Sure. I, uh, I have been an entrepreneur in this space for about eight years now, and Started a few companies. Uh, Ethereum was definitely one, the Ethereum uh, limited company, and we, that turned into the Ethereum Foundation, uh, which uh, obviously is a pretty big project in the space. And I also created Invictus Innovations with Dan Larimer, and that was uh, the BitShares project. And he later on went on to go to do EOS and uh, Steemit. And then uh, uh, the company I have spent most of my professional career in the space at is uh, Input Output Global. Uh, which originally was known IOHK and put out with Hong Kong. And it's a company with about 250 people. And we do a lot of science and engineering work, but we're principally focused on uh, economic identity. So we think a lot about how do you get economic identity to those who don't have it? Uh, so how do you get uh, the ability to move money around the world, get credit, get insurance, get banking services, uh, have a stable reputation metric that uh, doesn't change? If your government collapses, these types of things, uh, like credit scores or things like that. And it turns out that I think there's enough meat there on that problem for me to spend the rest of my life uh, working on it. And uh, we've had uh, some great fun, a lot of progress along the way. What makes us unique in you know, this part of my career is that we focus a lot on first principles thinking. So almost everything we do, there's a scientific paper behind it or a lot of original thought behind it. And at times it slows us down a little bit, but on the other hand, it allows us to come up with really novel new solutions to things. Like, for example, Cardano, uh, which has really disrupted a, the whole conversation of proof of stake. And soon we'll do the exact same thing with smart contracts. And yesterday, uh, you know, we really got going on Voltaire and, uh, you know, we have lots of people on IdeaScale now. So we're hoping for a governance revolution as well. Uh, so it's uh, it's uh, fun to be me. You know, I get to be a scientist some days, an engineer other days, and uh, get to go and try to change the world on uh, the weekends. It's it's definitely a, a very exciting space, blockchain. Um, you know, I, I remember my 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 first exposure to it, and I thought, you know, as as a as a somebody from from banking, I, I thought, you know, this is just uh, funny money. It just doesn't make sense. I shouldn't even yeah. look at it. But blockchain itself is is fascinating, and and 
open blockchain is a fascinating faucet of, of, of this whole space. Can you tell me um, what exactly attracted you to this, to this blockchain space? I mean, you're a mathematician, you had your career and, you know, you were teaching as far as I remember. Um, so what, 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 what was the, you know, the, 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 the catalyst? Yeah. You know, I, I was originally going to be a professor and I was kind of pursuing that, uh, that path slowly and systematically and, you, you have to do a lot and endure a lot of pain to become a proper professional mathematician and live off of very little money. So you become quite acquainted with ramen and, uh, you know, mac and cheese and, uh, you know, the other things. Uh, that said, um, at the same time, I was developing a love and a passion for Austrian economics and for just what makes good money. Uh, you know, because we all kind of grow up and we look at money as something special and divine. It's almost like a Bible or something. And you say, oh, this is this is some sort of special thing. Uh, but then when you start deconstructing it, you realize that it's just a piece of paper that we have collectively agreed to be worth something. You say, OK, well, uh, why is my money worth more than, let's say, Zimbabwe's money or Venezuela's money? And then when you start asking that question, you start flirting with some very uncomfortable truths about how geopolitics work and you know how banking works and so forth. Uh, so I joined the Ron Paul campaign back in 2007 and, and there it kind of crystallized a lot of these thoughts and I became for a time a gold bug and because I guess that's what happens when you start deconstructing monies. You go back to first principles and you start with commodity monies and then you kind of work your way to gold backed monies and you say, oh, okay. And then over time you kind of understand what credit is and fiat is and so forth. Uh, so Right around the same time, uh, a few years later, the Bitcoin revolution started, and suddenly it married kind of two passions. I, I loved numbers and math and computer science and cryptography. These were things that were always in the back of my mind, but I was also doing money stuff, and they were kind of merged together. And I said, wow, that's really cool. It will never work, but it's really cool and because it was one of those chicken and the egg type of ecosystems where you say, well, for it to work, a lot of people have to take it seriously, but people only take it seriously if it works. Right. So yeah, yeah. how do you how do you get that you know critical mass? Uh, so I, I was a speculator. I bought a lot of Bitcoin and I was a miner. You know, I had a crossfire set up with a bunch of AMD 5850s and I was you know on slushes pool, pool you know, uh, 1.2 giga hashes of mining power, which was quite a lot back in those days. And I made a lot of Bitcoin, uh, but I didn't take the space too seriously. Uh, and then right around 2013, I noticed an inflection point. It was after the Cypriot crisis where the government said, okay, it's all right for us to just start taking money out of other people's bank accounts to pay things. So, whoa, that's probably going to happen here if we're not so careful. And lo and behold, Bitcoin went from $4 to 260, I think it's $262, $263 at the all-time high there. And it was just a crazy surge. And so at that point, I said, you know, this is probably going to be a big thing. I need to get on the ship. And if I don't get on the ship, it's going to sail right by me. So I said, all right. So I didn't know anybody, didn't know what to do in the space. So, you know, I, I called an old uh, friend of mine who was a professor and I said, what should I do? And his advice to me was, uh, those who cannot do, teach. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. I can teach. So I created a bunch of free courses and content on YouTube and Udemy uh, for Bitcoin. And I ended up getting 70,000 plus students and thousands of emails. And I met everybody, Andreas Antonopoulos and Roger Ver and Eric Voorhees because they weren't so big at that time. You could actually just email them and talk to them and they'd talk to you. Uh, and through that process, it, it's what turned me in basically into an entrepreneur. And I had to learn how to run a business and incorporate and make payroll and do all these things. 
Uh, so it's been a pretty wild journey over the last uh, eight years uh, being in the space. But it took a few years before coming to the space to kind of realize the use and utility of it. And once you get to a certain inflection point, you start just thinking this is common sense. You know, we're either going to have a one world currency or we're going to have private monies that compete with national currencies. But it makes no sense for one country to be the world reserve currency. Uh, and then you start thinking about how global settlement clearing works. And wow, it takes five days for a wire transfer. And you have remittances that are 15 percent. But I can send an email and money is already digital. So why the hell does this cost so much? This is this is madness. Yeah. And then you start thinking about finance in general and you say, well, hang on, the way we're doing banking, the way we're doing credit, the way we do credit scores, all this stuff is really bad. We need to we need to improve it. And so this is just an open invitation for the whole world to start innovating and turn it into kind of a Darwinian marketplace where you have thousands of competing ideas. They fight each other and eventually the survival of the fittest, the, those ones will come to the top and we can rebuild the world financial system. It's just so That's exciting to be part of it. That that is that is a, it's a very interesting uh, and, and and accurate depiction of what's going on in the blockchain space, and I, and I completely share your your uh, your sentiment here. Um, I think you know for me the the uh, the, the the point uh, of realization was that you know when we write a check, for instance, right, it's 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 a message to the bank with right. your signature, which is easily faked. Um, to, to disperse funds right and it's it's very unsecure if you if you you know basically right. take, take it right you know if somebody has a check your checkbook and seen your signature i mean at this point you could probably fake it very easily with, with yeah, little, yeah but remember yeah. you know checks were an artifact of a time when we had multi-factor authentication through physical contact you know, so, you know, your banker, you know, you know, your cashier, you know, all these people. So if grandma writes a check for the grocery store, the cashier knows who grandma is. So if some 22 year old kid comes in with tattoos all over his face, claiming he's Margie, you're like, wait a minute here. This is this is crazy. You're not Margie. I know her. She has cats. Um, well, I, I, I can tell you another thing uh, that I've, I've tried it, actually, and it, it worked. Remember how you swipe a, a, the credit card and you had to sign? And a couple of times I said, I'm just going to sign like really weird, some signature, right? And it I, passed. I do, it I, passed. Do that, I do that all the time. I write Bob Dole. called me on it. I know. I mean, this is, this is there just to deter people. But actually, whoever has your card has your kind of like spending capability. Um, unless you're... You're, you're live in New Jersey and the guy who's trying to, uh, you know, use your card is, is somewhere in Oman. I got that call. But anyway, um, there are there insurance products to actually, uh, you know, take care of these situations. But again, it's it's a matter of cost here. But right. what I want to do, um, um, I want to go next to the next question, um, Charles. You know, for those people who do not know Cardano, can you tell us what is Cardano um, in, in, in a very, very short, short sort of um, way? Yeah, so we, we tend to look at Cardano as a financial operating system, and the intent of it is to give economic identity to those who don't have it. So to understand that, you have to ask, well, what is a financial operating system? And my view of that is it's, it's some form of collection of protocols and software and hardware that allows you to represent value identity and governance all in one setting. So basically, you, you can use this to issue stocks and bonds and commodities and currencies and utility tokens. You can use this to identify your people and do KYC and AML and your people or build reputation metrics and so forth. And you can use this to actually decide who pays and who's in control. 
because anything in finance requires a regulatory layer or a decision layer or governance layer. And if you go from a national to a transnational view and you go from public to private, you need to replace the pre-existing governance structures with something else. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's kind of a roll-up of a lot of the concepts and ideas that have come out of the peer-to-peer -peer foundation and ideas that have come out of the cryptocurrency space and ideas that have been floating around the uh, crypto anarchy world since the 1980s. And we said, let's just go for gold. Let's put a collection of protocols all into one stack and then call it a financial operating system and then say, well, what can you build then on something like that? And that's usually how you understand these things. Like people say, oh, I have a smartphone. It's like, well, what does that really mean? You say, well, let me show you Google Maps. You say, oh, okay. Now I kind of get an idea of what a smartphone does. And the more apps you see, the more clarity you get about what this concept is, the smartphone. Similarly, you say, what's a FOSS? You say, well, the more utilities that you see it runs, the more ideas you get. So for example, we're looking at things like supply chain systems. Uh, so we can track and trace agricultural goods. Uh, we're looking at voting systems. We're looking at credential management systems. Like country of Georgia, we have um, a deal we've done where 50,000 students a year are going to be onboarded into PRISM, which is a component of Cardano Stack. So you can authenticate if they have college degrees or not. Uh, and we're also looking at financial applications as well. Like uh, there's a whole bunch of DeFi things that are going to come, like stable coins and oracles and DEXs and the usual suspects that we see from the Ethereum space. But the general idea is that uh, the, the system should be able to be an end-to-end -end stack for economic identity. So what that means is that uh, if uh, some person in Senegal or some person in Rwanda or wherever uh, enters the system, they should be able to have some place to place their data and their identity to build a reputation. They should have some way of getting credit. They should have some way of interfacing with a currency that's reasonably stable that they can send to anybody in the world. They should have the ability to interface with exchanges. If they have a business, they should have the ability to securitize that business. Uh, so they have banking services, insurance services, credit services, remittance services, but then it also includes a governance stack. So if they, for example, want to do shareholder votes with a governance layer, well, they can reuse the Voltaire system, right? And then suddenly now they can do shareholder votes with the system. This is kind of the vision of it is that it's a one-stop shop. And then once you're in it, you don't have to leave it. And it will do more and more and more and more of your financial life and your economic life. And it gives you identity, identity that a government can't take from you, identity that's not revocable, identity that you can't lose. There's ways to recover and restore that. Uh, so that's kind of that pie-in-the-sky dream. But to get there, you need some really serious heavy-duty protocols and user experience and science. And that's what we've been working on for the last five years. You know, We've written more than 75 papers, a million lines of code, and we've launched now two generations of the product, Byron and Shelley. And every time we launch a generation, it gets more capabilities and features. And we're just entering the Voltaire era and soon the Gogan era. So we'll get smart contracts and voting. And then uh, basically the system self-evolves so that it can capture more and more and more of that economic life and also get more and more users. The other hallmark of Cardano is that we designed it so that the system will scale with the needs of its users. So one day we wake up and let's say we're fortunate enough to have a billion people in the system. Uh, the system can actually sustain and handle that, whereas current cryptocurrencies can't do that. So, you know, succinctly, what is Cardano? It's um, it's basically a framework to give people economic identity. We termed that a FOSS, a financial operating system. And under the hood, it has to have a bunch of protocols for value, identity, and governance. And then it's self-evolving. 
So those protocols get more sophisticated. They cover more and more of the financial markets and the general governance markets. They become lower cost to use uh, and more accessible for larger groups of people. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Um, and um, I know that you, you know, IO, IOG was um, one of the first, if not the first uh, cryptocurrency that said, you know, let's go back to the basics and, and, and use peer review research before we actually design and implement a, uh, a blockchain. Now, right. can you tell us what you learned in the process and whether that knowledge um, will help IOG to refine and improve Cardano in the future? Yeah, so this solves a acceptance. So you think about when you have a vendor-vendee relationship and you have things like acceptance criteria. Uh, so well, how do you actually verify if it's good or bad? So let's say a journalist is looking at a system or a third party is looking at a system and Bob says, I have the best proof of stake protocol. It has all these features and they give you some paper and it's got a lot of math in it. And most people can't read those papers. It's like someone gives me a paper on quantum chromodynamics. I'd be like, <clears throat> okay, um, this is a pretty paper. <laughs> I like the font. You know, it's, it's like moon math to me. I can't understand these papers. It's not my domain of expertise. Uh, so you need some independent third-party uh, group that comes in and says, we've read the claims and we think there's merit to them to the extent that they're probably right or at the very least they're in the right direction. And this is novel to the scientific community as a whole. So peer review doesn't tell you if it's completely correct or completely right, but rather it tells you trusted third parties who have no skin in the game, who are objective, have uh, reviewed the entire setup and said, hey, there's something here, and uh, we think that it looks right. Uh, and then it starts the discussion. So this is something that's been used for 400 years in the academic community successfully, and it's why we have the planes and the trains and the rocket ships and modern medicine and so forth. So we said that's probably a pretty good system for the scientific basis that we build a financial operating system on. Okay, but the problem is that it's very, very intensive. So you have to hire scientists, proper scientists, you have to write proper papers, and then you have to submit them to proper conferences. Um, normally, there's journals for peer review, but in the computer science world, it's inverted. Conferences are the primary peer review mechanism. So you submit the conferences. A lot of the, the ones we submit to accept only 10 to 20% of the papers that are submitted. It's a double-blind submission. So the author names are removed from the paper, uh, and they are sent in. So they're anonymized, and basically people look at it, and they don't know who the authors are but we don't know who the reviewers are. There's a review committee. So we know they're sampled from some committee and you can kind of tell because it's a small enough community, uh, but you don't know exactly who's there. And then they basically have a scale from strong reject to strong accept uh, with everything in, uh, in between weak, weak reject, uh, you know, re reject, uh, weak accept, accept, uh, strong accept, something like that. Depends on the conference. And uh, there's a back and forth process. So they'll say, okay, we may accept the paper, but we have a lot of questions or we just outright think it's garbage or this is the best thing we've ever read. You're, you're on the road to your Turing Award. Uh, you know, so that's your range of feedback that you get. Usually it's um, quite hostile because these people are paid to be professional cynics and critics and uh, very nitpicky. Cryptographers are extremely precise and vicious in their, uh, in their attempts to break things. And rightfully so. I mean, that's the mindset you want to have when your job is to you know, all day long, think about what can an adversary do to me? <laughs> you get to be the adversary and attack things. So it's a quite a, it's a quite a process and you get a, a lot of rejection along the way. And we've certainly had papers rejected. 
uh, but an overwhelmingly large amount of our papers have actually been accepted to conferences, which is rare. It's because they're written by very good academics who, who know that game well. So then once your paper is accepted, you usually, in pre-COVID days, go to the conference and present. And the people in the audience aren't everyday people. They're people's PhDs you know, from Harvard and all these other places. It's very intimidating. And they just sit there and they stare at you and you know that all these people scored better than you on the SAT. Uh, you know, they're, they're a really bright, uh, really bright crowd. And uh, after they hear your entire presentation, then the Q&A begins. They start asking questions and talking to you. Uh, and then here's what they do. They, they almost always will go back to their, their, their labs and talk to their graduate students and say, those guys are dummies. We can write a better paper than them. And they do. And they write a better paper and they kick you in the teeth in the introduction and the uh, uh, you know, related protocols section, like we saw with Snow White, for example, and other papers that have come out in these days. And then, of course, we write papers and kick them in the teeth. Uh, but that's the process. And you have this beautiful learning process then it's 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 expensive in terms of effort and time but what it does is it broadens your thoughts to the minds of hundreds if not thousands of people and you have people who are basically critical of you who are actively looking for ways of breaking and destroying your protocol and your ideas and and finding ways to make that uh make that work for them so uh, if you're humble enough to go into this process and take the hits, when you come out the other side, whatever you've done is going to end up being significantly better than what you could have done as your own team. And you're going to go through this process as a cryptocurrency, whether you want to or not. The only difference is, are you going to do it with academics who are there for tenure and brownie points and reputation, or are you going to do it with anonymous hackers over the internet who are there for the money, stealing money from your customers? So this, this decision that you make, and I think it makes a lot more sense to do it with the academics, and you certainly learn a lot more in a very structured way. As a final point to that, uh, a lot of the times when you're wrong, that's actually a good thing because you learn a huge amount from that. And the people who find out that you're wrong, they get very obsessed with it, and they try to find a, a better way of doing things. A great example, it's in the physics world. I just read last night. There was a team at Harvard back in 2017 that was attempting to make metallic hydrogen. And metallic hydrogen is one of those like mystical super materials that if we could ever make it, it would like change everything like graphene. And anyway, the only way you can really make it is you have to get a diamond anvil and you have to take hydrogen and put it under so much pressure. It's like more pressure than, that's, than what's in the core of the earth. I mean, like this is something that's made in stars. It's not made in you know, reality uh, in normal life. So anyway, this Harvard team tried to make it, and they claimed that they did, but then they said they lost the sample. And there's all these little issues with their approach in their paper. The most critical team for that Harvard team was this team in France. And they said, oh, here are all these things you've done wrong. And so the Harvard team's like, well, if you think you can do a better job, you do it yourself. And they said, sure, fine. So uh, these, these French guys got together, and they spent three years at their university, and they built a completely different diamond anvil and a different diamond tip, and it looks like they've actually made metallic hydrogen. If they have, it's a Nobel Prize of Physics for them. But that's the point of peer review, is that you tell the world what you've done, your methodology, how you think. They read it. They criticize you. They give you suggestions and advice, and then every now and then someone who's read it will go and just do something better. But the thing about our industry, the cryptography space, is almost all of this research is open source. So let's say Jim over at Stanford you know, figures something out. We can read the paper and be like, that's a good idea, and go, and go implement it and say, yeah, that's, that's better than our thing. And what does it mean for the Cardano ecosystem? We get all that value. 
for free. We didn't even have to pay the guy, you know? So that's uh, that's a good world to be in. But you know, you have to know the language. You know, you have to, you have to know the secret handshake. You have to have the credentials. Uh, technically, anybody can submit papers and there's plenty of people without PhDs who've done that very successfully. In fact, the creators of Public Key Crypto, um, Diffie, he only has bachelor's degrees. So it's like, you don't really need to be specially credentialed to be successful, but the people who generally are the ones who have domain expertise and training. So it's, it's not easy. Uh, but it's necessary if your protocols are very complicated and you want to service the needs of billions of people. Well, I, I, I can definitely say that I, I've read every single paper that um, Ouroboros, um, you know, the team um, that created Ouroboros posted. And I can see the iteration and how each paper was uh, trying to uh, address the, the probably the weaknesses that, that the, uh, these conferences probably identified. Um, and, you know, prowess was probably something that uh, was in the works when the first paper was released, because, you know, that's necessary in order for a decentralized network to work. But uh, I was very impressed with Kronos, to be honest, because it's just something that, 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 you know, sources time internally and does not rely on, on, on any external input that could be compromised. You know, those, those kind of things that, that when I read were pretty impressive, you know, um, in, in, in your line of work. And, uh, and I can't wait to see them implemented in Cardano. Yeah, actually, that was a really special paper, Kronos. Yeah, you know, Leslie Lamport was one of the first guys to do major work in distributed systems. And he wrote this beautiful paper on clocks and time in the distributed system from like the 1960s or 1970s. It's one of the most cited papers of all time in the systems world. And Kronos was like unfinished business in that respect. And it's um, it's really fun to write papers like that. And it has real use. You can completely decouple a, a dependency on NTP and these types of things. Uh, there's a lot of theory there. And I'm, I'm glad and somewhat surprised that you've read through the papers. Most people haven't. They're very hard papers to, uh, to fully grok. I mean, you can yeah. read the intro and the conclusion and kind of get an idea of what's going on. But the problem with the Orpors papers, and this is something that we've tried to start re addressing is there's a lot of mathematical nuance and complexity in them. And uh, that is very hard for non-domain experts to, to work their way through. Um, you know, so we rewrote actually the Ouroboros classic paper, you know, we yeah, I saw that <laughs> yeah. 2016 and we rewrote it in 2019 <clears throat> and the new paper is significantly better. And I said, well, when are we going to rewrite the Prowse paper and the Genesis paper? We need to kind of follow this model. They're like, yeah, we'll get around to that. <laughs> <laughs> But one of these days, you know, it's, it's, it's like in the invention of quantum mechanics, you know, the first few guys who worked on that, uh, it was just a mass soup and it was a mess. And then guys like Feynman came around and created Feynman diagrams and all the simplicity came into the field. And then suddenly undergraduates could study it, and kind of grasp it and do things with it. So I think that's the highest form of art in science is yeah. simplicity. It's not necessarily getting rid of complexity, but... Uh, expressing being ideas. able to explain things and express things you know, with enough simplicity and brevity that even non-experts or non-domain experts can enter the field, read it, and get a rough idea of exactly what you've done and why it works and be convinced that it's true. Um, this is one of the reasons why I, I think, for example, gender studies is not, and grievance studies are not really legitimate fields of study because if you read their papers, they're incomprehensible. I'm literally yeah. incomprehensible. The, it's just a, it's a, like a it's like some of schizophrenia is, you know, you got, got you know, what is, was it? Verbal diarrhea, you know, confabulation. It's like, they're just putting words on paper and they're, 
and they're just like, I, I know what each of these words mean individually, but when you string them together into these strange sentences, I'm not sure what's going on. And then you ask, well, what are you actually trying to say? Uh, and then no one can actually give you a concise explanation. Meanwhile, when you actually look at all the major breakthroughs of science, like Newtonian mechanics or all the really elegant mathematics that have come or engineering that have come, it's always been we found a simpler way to do it that is much easier on cost and time to build and understand by the general masses. And then people say, oh, my God, that's so beautiful. Give that person a Nobel Prize. So we strive for that as a uh, as an organization, and you know we we push very hard for that level of simplicity. We have yet to achieve it on the proof of stake side because it's a new field. But one of the agendas in the coming years, especially 21 and 22 and 23, will be to kind of synthesize all the knowledge that we have gained from working on Cardano in the last five years into one kind of monograph or one uh, one canonical source, like maybe a new book on systems or something. And basically say this is the way on how to do uh, you know systems in uh, in the cryptocurrency space. There's actually a book that did that for AI. This this is probably one of the greatest books of AI ever written. It's by Peter Norvig and Stuart Russell, and I'm reviewing it for a class that I'm going to teach on computer science. And uh, this book first came out in 1995. Uh, and before it, you know, if you wanted to study AI, there were a lot of texts floating around, but they were they were not really strung together in a way that were super accessible and they were more domain focused on whatever the professor cared about. What Peter did and Stuart did is they just put everything in one place and they made it really simple and easy to understand. And now it's gone through four editions and it's kind of like the Bible of AI. So if you really want to learn AI, that's the starting point. Uh, John Katz and uh, Yehoda Liddell did the same thing for cryptography with introdu introduction to cryptography and modern approach. They put all this really complicated ideas and they just put it all in one book and they said, Here, here's the thing for it. So I think that's the long-term goal for, especially for Ouroboros, the research agenda is to kind of synthesize a canonical manual and say, you know, this is the thing and it'll make it easy for people to get. But it's a very expensive to do that. Simplicity is the most expensive thing in science. Yeah, I, I can I can definitely agree with that too. Um, I want to move on to to uh, the the issue of safety um, with with blockchain and, and and cryptocurrencies in general because there's uh, for right right or wrong reasons um, you know the the general public might perceive cryptocurrencies as being hackable although that has never been the case with major cryptocurrencies. Um, but um, you have chosen to to write the entire um, blockchain, the, the, the Cardano in, in Haskell. Um, and and uh, from my basic understanding, the, the, cho the, the choice for functional programming was to eliminate, uh, reduce if not completely eliminate the, uh, the, the types of problems that cause the, the, the money to be lost or the system to, to, to be uh, you know, uh, untrustworthy for large transactions. Um, can you tell tell us if the results have met your expectations in that regard? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so people, you know, it's, it's, it's it, programming languages are, are are like religions in some respect. You know, if if you're a good Catholic, then everybody should be Catholic. So if you like C plus plus, then everybody should program in C plus plus. It's very it's very crazy. Um, so for first. Everything I say, I always put that as a uh, disclaimer. 
so here's my problem. I have these deep scientific papers that are in math, not programming languages, okay? And somebody has to translate them from math to code. And uh, there's going to be an impedance mismatch there. There's going to be a semantical issue where you go from math land and crazy protocols to actual code in production. There's a very good possibility you're going to make mistakes, very good possibility you might actually implement the wrong protocol, a close protocol, but actually it's not the same as what the scientists wanted to do, especially when they start citing things like ideal functionality and so forth. And so early in the process, we said, well, uh, we need to add an intermediate step where we carefully write down specifications and also kind of math, but math that is amenable to code. That's called a formal specification. There's a whole field of computer science that does nothing but think about that. You have these weird people called computational logicians who worry about it, and they're they're like, you, you were too cool to be a mathematician, but you're too much of a mathematician to be a computer scientist. So they had to put you somewhere that, you know, as a computational logician. So... Uh, so anyway, uh, we, we have these strange people who do these things. And then when you write as formal specification, then what you have is an ambiguity-free, sometimes machine understandable, in our case is not, uh, way of expressing protocols. Okay, But then you have a path to get to code, and that path to get to code has a much lower chance of, uh, of a hack or a security problem or a semantical issue or whatever. Okay, uh, So that alone is a huge step. And there's many pioneers there. Lamport wrote TLA+. There's languages like Coq and Agda and Isabel. Uh, but those don't make a product. All they do is just give you some certainty that the product that you're building is has merit. Um, you see this a lot in large companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Google in particular. They model almost all of their systems using languages like TLA because they have these gigantic emergent systems with millions of computers and hundreds of millions of lines of code and billions of users. You know, failures, if you, every time you add a few more, a little bit more complexity, you increase your rate of failure, you know, you're going to have failure every day with that kind of, those kinds of numbers and scale. So you need to build, have better tools to help you mitigate that. So we took that area first, and then we said, okay, well, what are we going to implement Cardano in? And we said, well, the engineers who are doing the formal methods work, they're probably going to live in the functional programming world more than the object-oriented world, because that world is very, you know, they're very interconnected with each other. So why should we go hire a completely separate set of engineers? Let's go hire one set that knows how to do both sides and we'll have a beautiful flow from science to code. That was the hypothesis. And it worked out somewhat well. The problem was that Haskell as a language was just not ready for something like Cardano uh, and all, all of its needs. And along the way, we had to actually make Haskell as a language better uh, we also had to write a lot of custom libraries and code, and you know we had to do foundational work, GHC work, GHC to JS, GHC to Web Assembly. It was unbelievable the effort that we put in to do these things. The other thing is that that approach is very waterfall-like. So by the time you get from the paper to the code, um, it can be quite some time. So. This is one of the reasons why we had so many slowdowns. Uh, there were many, but this is one of the uh, pillars uh, that holds up all those delays that we've uh, historically experienced. So we had to learn how to be an agile, formal methods, science, functional programming company. There's none of them in the world, but we had to learn how to do that in the last five years, and it was horrible. But we kind of did, and we launched Shelly, and you know we're now actually moving with predictable speed and so forth. And a lot of the rough edges of Haskell have been removed at least for our needs and we're even 
uh, funding uh, the Haskell Foundation to kind of direct the evolution of that language so that it, it can continue to serve the needs of our protocols adequately. Uh, so, uh, you know, in hindsight, could we have done it differently? Could we have chosen a different approach? Who knows? Now, the benefits are conciseness. We have significantly less code in production uh, than, let's say, Bitcoin's core client or Ethereum's core client. In many cases, when you go from object-oriented to functional, you have a 5 to 10x reduction in lines of code. Why does that matter? Less code, less to maintain, less to read. And when you write code, you generally write it once for every five or 10 times it's read. So if you have a, you know, 100,000 lines of code, you really actually are reading 500,000 or a million lines of code. If you have 10,000 lines of code, you're reading 50 to 100, right? So it's just an order of magnitude there. Uh, and then maintenance is a lot easier because you get a lot more tools like quick check and other things. Property-based testing is phenomenal for testing correctness of distributed systems. So there were huge advantages, and those advantages allowed us to do things like just recently when we launched Shelly, it was very slow when you went from the Byron to Shelly crossover. A lot of people noticed that uh, and because we hadn't had time to optimize the code. Normally, if you're optimizing a big distributed system of C++ or Java code, you'd be spending months meticulously doing that. In two weeks, we had an update, a node update, and it was 100 times faster because we were able to so easily do performance profiling with the functional code. And, you know, we, we everything is so modular and you can look at function by function and, you know, there's no side effects to complex your, your benchmarks and so forth. So uh, there are massive advantages on maintenance, uh, being able to move around and certain things just, I don't know how to do them in other languages. Like the hard fork combinator was a uh, super, 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 uh, involve complex piece of engineering the and we had some people try to implement something like it before and they couldn't actually do it so then edsco did it and he did it with haskell and he said i just don't know how to do it any other way than you know this approach uh so you know it's it's a mixed bag and there are cultural issues too you know when you hire these brilliant science engineers they can read papers better than any engineer can uh, but they don't really like working with agile or you know, these other processes or these things. And they say, yes, when is it done? They say, it's done when it's done. <laughs> it might take five years, but like, whoa, this is a business here. We got to, yeah. we, we got to figure this out. You know, come on, let's, let's, let's work together. So you kind of have to deal with that and so forth. But overall, I think uh, we've, yeah. we've resolved the problems and, you know, actually this has been our best engineering year and we're only speeding up. So Haskell today, great. Haskell five years ago, uh, I did not know that I was just about to go lay in a bed full of razor blades and heroin needles. It was, uh, it was a, it was a, it was an experience, ten dollar experiences. No, I, I'm, I'm regardless of what uh, you know, the the number of years it took. I think you guys have done something. I mean, you've achieved something monumental. I mean, I, I kind of think back to the day when you guys raised what sixty million dollars. Um, when other projects have what had you know the the war chests of billions of whatnot if, if multiple hundreds of millions and you have managed to deliver you know so if, if you think about you know the uh the the return on 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 investment or return on every dollar that you have raised i think this you know creating something that's so fundamental is just this is you know the governments probably would have uh, wasted, you know, millions, multiple hundred millions of dollars in, in creating something that you guys achieved in five years because you were probably uh, also driven by, 
the commercial side of things and, and, and IOG pushed it. So I, I'm yeah, glad it, it's, it's it here. A lot of people, the community helped enormously. Like, for example, you guys with the incentivized test that uh, that is what made it so easy to launch Shelly. Because, you know, we had this incredible group of people that were ready to take over, ready to go. And they were always giving us good advice and feedback. Uh, and uh, that means that no matter what happens, the staking experience is going to get where it needs to go. It might take six months. It might take nine months. But it's going to get where it needs to go. The parameters will get where they need to go. The experience will get where it needs to go. We're already talking with Vacuum Labs about segregation of credentials and, and cryptographic assets. So you have like a cold experience and a hot experience. You can do things like cold pledging and uh, and cold delegation and all, all these other things. Well, what what does this mean? It means that your Amazon EC2, if that ever gets you know compromised, you can just build another one, but you haven't lost your money, your pledge money, or these other things. So it's just little things to make the life easier for the stake pool operator. Well, that came out of discussions directly with the operators, and that's the other lesson that has to be learned: is that these things are only as good as the customers who use them. And the fact that we have some of the best people around who are in our ecosystem, it actually forces us to rise to the occasion and be better. Uh, Voltaire is another phenomenal example of that. We have over a thousand people that registered already with um, IdeaScale and hundreds of ideas are going to flow through that first generation. And then people say, hey, wait a minute here. The fund is giving away real money. We should participate too. So you create this beautiful feedback loop where more and more people join. And then the next fund, maybe there'll be 5,000 or 10,000 and it'll keep scaling. Uh, and then the conversations will get better. The tools will get better. The ways to participate will get better. And we'll wake up in six to nine months and it'll be just such a more refined experience. So yeah, foundations matter, like good science and good engineering, but experiences matter as well and customers matter. And as long as you have that good relationship and the feedback loop makes you better each cycle, it's pretty inevitable that you'll end up becoming the market standard. Because when everybody else tries to compete with you, it's like everything you have is so much more refined and your your customers are so much more loyal that even if they have a huge first mover advantage or more money, you can't buy that. Google is a great example of that competing with Microsoft. You know, Microsoft said, oh, we'll just build Bing and that will replace uh, Google search engine. We'll just throw $15 billion at it and buy all these companies. And, you know, then they even tried to buy Yahoo for $40 billion. It's crazy. Uh, and then, you know, look at the search uh, volume for Google versus Bing. And Bing yeah. is a great product. There's a lot of magic there. But you know, people are very loyal to Google in that respect. Uh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I, I noticed that, uh, you know, the perceptions matter when it comes to market. I mean, you can see it in the behavior of people with pools, you know, in, in our ecosystem, right? Yeah. You know, um, the, the, the if you think about it, right, from a risk return perspective, um, the returns on each pool aren't that different. Uh, you know, maybe there is a, a percentage, you know, um, a fraction of a percentage different here and there, but you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the difference between a most expensive pool and a least expensive pool is, is never, um, is never more than probably 50 basis points or whatnot, uh, right. less than 50 basis points. But again, you know, you see that, you know, the pools that are successful are the ones that have built awareness and, and built something that um, that is built on reputation uh, rather than anything else. Um, so people gravitate to towards those kind of like sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, pools in that respect. I mean, I'm not saying Google is not doing their job. They're doing a great job there. But I'm saying that, uh, uh, that, that probably uh, Microsoft, despite the fact that they are 
uh, you know, technologically very savvy. They're really capable. They just haven't had traction with customer, you know, the way that Apple did, for instance, right? Well, but, but here's the interesting counterexample to that point. Microsoft is just kicking Apple in the teeth with the growth of the Surface line. They've so changed. Building, yeah. yeah, they've definitely changed. And so, you know, it is possible to chip away at first mover advantage. We've seen it in the tech industry over and over and over again. It's like, where's AOL and Yahoo? You know, <laughs> how, how are they doing today? So just because you have a monopoly today doesn't necessarily mean you'll keep it. MySpace is another example of that. There's dozens of them. The key is, are you, when you're chipping away at that, just saying, I'm the same thing, but come to me? Uh -huh. Or are you saying, I'm doing something new and unique that no one else has done before, and I'm giving you experiences that you've never had before? So, for example, uh, when the iPhone came out, I mean, think about platform advantage there. They had no developers, zero. And Microsoft had all of them in 3 billion customers. So Microsoft's like, don't even think iPhone's a threat because, you know, Windows Phone will eventually be Windows and, you know, developers will stay in our ecosystem because that's where all the people are. And then 10 years later, it's like yeah, app developers never develop Windows first anymore. They, they develop iPhone first usually because it's the highest value market, followed by Android. And then if they have time, they'll put it on Mac OS and, uh, and onto Windows. So yeah, it's like, I, how did they do that? It's because the iPhone offered a new experience that you you couldn't do before. And this is why I look and say, well, where are we going to get the first mover or platform advantage for Cardano? Where am I selling it? Am I going to California and Silicon Valley or to New York? And no, because it's a false uh, it's a false hope that you're going to get large scale platform adoption in these jurisdictions. If you're selling financial products in New York City, it's super regulated. So the people who are yeah, exactly. The people who are going to win that game by default are Goldman Sachs and Chase and these other guys who already have all the licenses. The only place we've even been able to move the needle is a state where we change the laws, Wyoming, to move that needle. So you know, maybe we can build a market there, and we're certainly trying. Kraken just got a bank license, so okay. But you know, you look at that market, it's like saying you're going to have a race – and I'm going to put concrete blocks on your legs. And the other guy is, is 20 years younger than you and doesn't have any concrete blocks. So like, are you going to win that race? Well, maybe, you know, maybe if you're like the world's fastest runner, you might just win, but the odds are you're not. So we go to Africa, to Southeast Asia, we go to uh, Eastern Europe, we go to South America. These markets collectively have tens of trillions of dollars of value. Okay, it's there. And there's billions of people. People are valuable. And they have no brand preferences and regulation has yet to set. So you say, would you like to use the old legacy system? And rich white people in New York are going to be the primary beneficiaries and they get nine cents for every one penny you get. Or would you like to use a system you own yourself and you keep all the value? And they're like, yeah, I think this new system has some merit. Let's go with that. So you get billions of customers this way. So it's not like you're convincing someone who has brand preferences or regulatory restrictions to move from one system to the other. You're taking a person who has to upgrade because they're going from an analog to a digital world and to globalize, they need to enter some system and you're giving them an option to enter that system. And those people collectively have just as much wealth as the developed world. It's just illiquid and inaccessible at the moment. Uh, so yeah. I think our prospects are phenomenal because what is my competition offering them? Centralization, hyper-regulation, foreign control, uh, much higher fees, worse services and product, things that don't natively work. Uh, and also, basically, every time something goes wrong, they have no recourse. Charles, can, can you tell us about um, 
why people or governments or, or companies need to change to change to change and uh, switch to open blockchain rather than creating something on 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 their own sort of uh, you know closed systems. And right. um, you know, what are you offering technologically, economically, and politically for them? Well, it's mostly about globalization. So if you live in a silo, there's no reason to leave the silo. Um, but if you want to trade with people, then you have this problem of who's in control. So let's say you have uh, Italy and Ethiopia, and they want to enter in some sort of trade agreement. And Ethiopia will sell coffee, and Italy will sell wine. Okay. Well, then how do you regulate that? Well, it's a bilateral agreement. Well, then what happens when you add like six more partners? And you have eight now countries that are negotiating. Who's in charge? What about when you have 30 countries? What happens when you add a bunch of companies in too? And what happens when those companies start violating some standard? And the host country says, like, for example, China with intellectual property. No, 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 no. There knows there's no violation. We're not going to hold anything against those companies. And then you're, you, the other partners are saying, no, they're stealing intellectual property. Like when Microsoft went to China in the early 2000s and they shared the source code of Windows XP, China said, yeah, we're not going to buy that. And then suddenly all the computers in the government started looking a lot like Windows XP, but uh, you know, it was reskinned. And then Microsoft's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. What just happened here? Uh, so you know, who holds these people accountable? So when you're a sovereign country, especially smaller to mid-sized countries that don't have giant militaries and nuclear weapons, it's really hard to be treated fairly when you're dealing with other counterparties. So generally, we form these big transnational organizations like World Bank, World Trade Organization, the IMF, and dozens of other transnational regulators with the hope that these things will somehow create some notion of fairness in our trade with each other. But then you say, well, hang on a second here. Uh, those are majority controlled by the countries with big armies and nuclear weapons. They're not controlled by the small actors. So they run into the same problem where they're basically told how to do business. To an extent, sometimes you don't even have sovereignty where you're just like you're the lead, head of a country and you want to do something. Your people want to do something. They vote to do something. And then a transnational body will come to you and say, yeah, no. And you're like, but my people told me to do this. I, I have to do that. No, I'm sorry. You will shut you off. You lose all your correspondent bank connections. You'll be uh, blacklisted in the League of Nations. And in some cases, they have regime change, like Gaddafi and Libya after he wanted to go to a gold standard. Uh, so, okay, what does that mean? So when you go to these governments, you say, hey, the whole point of blockchain is no one's in control. That's intrinsically appealing as long as they feel comfortable that there is some notion of regulation in the system but it's regulated from within the system. It's a dodge. It's almost like that Kronos thing. Like, do you keep time outside of the system or do you have time inside of the system? Well, regulation is the same way. You can either regulate from outside of the system or you can be regulating within the system. And they say, oh, if it's regulating within the system, it's fair because we all know the terms and conditions up front. We all know how change occurs up front. We all know who's in control up front. And then this means that they have a much easier time with lower friction of interfacing with the consequences of trade and globalization. Now for their people, it's a huge windfall because taking care of people in a modern economy is super expensive. Just look at our social budget that we have in the United States or other places, trillions of dollars. And all these services the government has to provide, uh, they have to give you a passport, driver's license, all this stuff. These are all loss leaders. They're not profitable endeavors for governments to participate in, especially when your people can't pay you for them. So you go to Ethiopia, so you have 107 million people, and those people want a modern standard of living. How are those people going to get birth certificates and IDs and 
get online and all this other infrastructure for a modern society if they don't you can't charge enough in taxes or fees to be able for the government to provide these services you come with a blockchain you say well actually there's a way to do this and by the way when they do it here they're intrinsically globalized so yeah. it's not just about issuing a document you don't actually have to build facilities to make that document interoperable with your neighbors Nigeria and Kenya and these other places. No, no, no. It's already there. And if they want to plug into it, it's on an open interface and they can use this to do global business right off the bat, which means more direct foreign investment into your country, more trade, more money for your people. They rise up. And you can do this across every facility, voting, property rights, even the currency of the country itself, as we're starting to see with CBDCs. Uh, so it's a very attractive conversation when you have power asymmetries, you know, when you go from large countries down to mid to small countries, because they're already feeling the pressure and the unfairness in the world order. And they would much rather have a system that gives them a little bit more say and predictability and control. And they're no longer being preyed upon by these larger countries. Um, for larger countries, you don't talk to the government. You talk to the people who own the government, the big corporations. And you say, look, uh, guys, if you want to make money, the best way you're going to make money is getting 3 billion new customers. The guys in Ethiopia are your customers right now because they can't talk to you and you can't safely do business with them because the systems are broken. I fix these systems. You can now sell products and services to 107 million new people just for that one country. And you just keep going down and say, all these, oh, yeah, but those customers aren't very valuable. It's like, well, yeah, Chinese customers weren't very valuable in 1980. How valuable are they now as a marketplace? So, you know, if you get in early, you can get market mover advantage there. And then suddenly as they grow in wealth, you'll proportionally grow. And these are great growth markets for you to be in. And if your cost of entering the market is very low and you have predictable business, okay. Yeah, we're on board with that. So that's how you get the big governments to change because the people who subsidize the politicians who run those big governments, uh, the big companies, they're always profit hungry. And if they say, by opening these marketplaces up, we can make more money, suddenly the politicians will think it's a good idea to open those markets up and do business and become interoperable and compatible with them. So I think it's a very organic, natural way of selling. You start with the developing world, and they absolutely need this because they want fairness. They don't want to be bullied. They want to be in control of their own lives. And they want to be able to provide modern lifestyles to their citizens, but they can't afford them in the legacy system. So there's a better way of doing things. And then yeah. if you do that, they get wealthier. And then collectively, the Fortune 500 companies want to do business with them because that's a new market, just like all these companies wanted to enter China, for example. And then they're going to go to their governments and say, we need to change our regulations to allow us to do business with these people because you know those people are wealthy and we don't want to lose customers. And the governments will, of course, say yes, because if they say no, the next wave of politicians that replace them will say yes. Will say yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, absolutely. I mean, that that kind of triggered a, a, th a thought in my mind, you know, like I, I remember you traveling a lot and I used to work for the for the IFC, which is part of the World Bank. And I and I definitely see a, a lot of parallels there in, in your thought process and what would happen in my head when 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 I, you know, uh, finance these projects. Right? I used to finance infrastructure projects. There There are. So some economic realities um, as infrastructure sort of investors, right? That, you know, you, you, you look at the last mile cost. And if the, the mile cost is, is too expensive for a, a population of 500, for instance, you would just you wouldn't go there. I think um, the problem with financial infrastructure is kind of the same. It's just that, you know, it, it, it spans countries, you know, you know, it's easier to go to France because, you know, France has 
wealthy population and and it has right. the infrastructure and uh, the the educated uh, you know sort of uh, you know pe- people who actually make the system work and you know if i had to um, pin down the the major value proposition of a, an open blockchain from my side the way i see it as a financial prof- professional is is actually a, a system of record keeping is the building block of, right. of anything you can think of right in in the modern society it's just that we had uh, the, the the brain power and the time and, and the, the dedication to build them the way that we built them. But um, a, a country that has none of this can can adopt it in, 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 a, in a jiffy, in a very inexpensive right. way. They could have a system of records. The way I see it is that you could actually have um, – you know, uh, the, the companies operate on a blockchain. They don't have to be completely transparent. You could have a, a, a key that allows, let's say, the, the tax collecting sort of uh, authority just to see the books of the companies and charge them with taxes and whatnot that they owe. But the, 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 the selling point here is that you will have those records. You know how many times I, I, um, I would meet with all these people in EBRD, right? The mayors of cities and whatnot, the governors. And their biggest headache was, you know, how to, how to collect taxes, you know, because right. w- whatever, you know, you're giving a bunch of paper that just kind of like exists there. And, and, and I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. In, in these countries, there are two sets of books and white books and the black books. And the black book right. is the one that, that actually matters because that's where the actual profits are. And then the white book is for the government to tell you, to tell them that, oh, you don't have money. Right. So, um, and then the tax rates are really high there because they kind of they say, okay, we'll take that into consideration because they have black books. So I'm going to just say, you know, 17% right. on, on this white, you know, whatever you give me in the white books. But if you have a blockchain, right, when, when everything is on the blockchain and you tell me if that's possible or not, but um, if you have everything on the blockchain and and um, the government, just like we do in Cardano, basically sets a tax rate voted by by their population or by the Senate or whoever, um, then you don't even have to sustain and, and keep the, the army of people who go down right. the, the businessman's door and then try to shake them for you know a couple of rubles and whatnot, right? So that's that's one of the things. It's like a win-win situation there. And the second thing is that, you know, uh, people would be more willing to to uh, to you know not people, but the government would be more willing to actually adopt these kind of technologies um, because it it increases their taxable base, uh, you know, and also it will be more fair because you wouldn't be killing a business thinking that you know oh, this guy ne- needs to pay me more because I think he has money, but in reality he may not have that money. So in a, in, in in addition to that, you you probably would be uh, you know. Uh, in addition to 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 solving those kind of problems, you know, think about uh, a cow killing a cow that gives you a milk right every day. You know, you can say, right. well, you know, uh, I I think I I could be better off today, but then you wouldn't have milk for the rest of your life. But yeah, I mean, do, do you when you meet with uh, the heads of governments uh, is my question. You know, what do you discuss? What are the lowest I mean, hanging points? It depends on the country, and you know, I I know a lot of heads of state now. It's one of them even gave me a giraffe. It's a it's a pretty crazy world. Uh, Mongolia was probably the most fun uh, because uh, when I talked about taxes, I said, "Do you have a problem with tax compliance?" They say, "Oh, it's terrible here because a third of our population are nomads, and you try to tax them, they disappear into the desert." <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, "Yeah, that's yeah, that's tough." <laughs> so you know, here's the first axiom, and people don't get this, no matter how high the tax rate is, in poor countries, rich people tend not to pay taxes. 
Uh, they have the luxury of being global citizens and disappearing in ways or structuring themselves in ways where they can always minimize their tax burden. So uh, that class is is very Robert Barony in these places we go, whether it be Indonesia or the Philippines or other places, and sometimes sickeningly so. And these governments, they're always trying to deal with these realities. And they say, we'd love to be able to charge a fair tax. And some governments actually had breakthroughs, like the government of Georgia, for example, in Eastern Europe, they have a very simple tax system. They have flat tax, and they got rid of an enormous amount of corruption over a 10-year period. But it was hard. It was very, very hard. And like people like ended up dead in rivers and these things. It was They had to fire every police officer in the city of Tbilisi and train a completely parallel police force. It was, okay. there was, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of things that they had to do to get there. And there's still a long road to go because, I mean, it is what it is. So we do have conversations about record keeping. We do have conversations about automation of taxes and fees and regulatory compliance and so forth. Um, and what's nice about a lot of small and medium-sized countries is you can have real conversations. I've never had a real conversation with the IRS or the SEC or FinCEN or these other things. I've had an official conversation followed by cocktail drinks and kind of like, well, maybe. You know, you can never get a real conversation out of the United States. But you go to Georgia, it's like literally you can talk to the head of state and have dinner with them and say, okay, what's really going on? They said, oh, this is the problem. I said, okay. And you ask, what are your pain points? And sometimes they're in super simple pain points to understand, but super hard pain points to resolve. Like in Ethiopia, I remember having dinner with Khalid Bamba, who's the CEO of the Agricultural Transformation Agency. And they're in charge of 15 million smallholder farmers in the country. So it's a huge task. And their job is to figure out how do we get them collectively uh, doing the right thing so we don't ever have starvation again. And you know we can actually grow wealth and modernize our, our agricultural processes. And so his, he's got the hardest job in the country. Anyway, we're talking to him. I said, well, what's your problems right now? He said, well, Charles, my biggest problem today is that when fertilizer comes from Djibouti to Addis, it arrives in Djibouti at 50 pounds. And I guess it goes on a diet because when it gets to Addis, it's 35 pounds, the bags. It's like, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I say, well, let's look at your supply chain. And you know, we start unwinding that. And there's probably 600 different unique entities that are touching those bags before they arrive in Addis Ababa. So that's the problem they want to solve. Because, you know, it's great to talk about big geopolitics and the rise of great nations and philosophy and Bastiat and Ludwig von Mises and these things. You can go all the way down the road, right? But yeah. at the end of the day, if you can't solve the problem of disappearing shit, you are shit. <laughs> so that's, that's how this works. Uh, so those are how you build these relationships with these policymakers. But if you're really clever in your solutions architecture, along the way, you can say, well, we can put digital identity here that also could be used for census and voting. We can put a payment system in here. We can put a tax compliance system in here. We can do all kinds of track and trace things here that are very useful for solving a collection of problems. You solve the primary problem, but in the process of solving that problem, you solve a web of secondary problems. And then they say, wow, okay, this has legs. What else can we do? And then suddenly you have 12 other ministers calling you saying like, I heard from the ATA that you solved this thing. Can you do the same thing for us? You say, sure. And over time, you kind of blockchain the entire country. I think Georgia is probably going to be the first country to be fully blockchained in the next five. I, I have no doubt about that. I, I've, you know, I've, I've worked there. I've, I've, you know, visited them a lot, and, uh, and I've, you know, from all the former Soviet Union republics, I think Georgia is my favorite. And they've got good food and good. Yeah, I was going to say they, you get about five pounds or ten pounds when you visit there because they <laughs> give you so much meat and wine. It's, it's unbelievable. 
I know it's uh it's a fascinating country and, and it's amazing that they have you know Stalin was from there right you know yeah um, yeah you know yeah. that it's just completely opposite of what you know you, you know what, what Stalin was about all about but anyway it's uh it, it's 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 a it's a great sort of time to be alive and 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 see this blockchain space develop because I think it has in its infancy even um, started a tectonic shift around money around value around um, the, the supply chains uh, around how we you know save how we spend how we invest and I think there's a lot of good things um, still in store for us as we try to discover what we can build on it and just like the early days of, of, of um, you know um, internet we, we are just trying to get you know, a sense of like what we can right. do with this, but uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, well, as I say, well, always sky's the like, limit, uh, right? There's an escape velocity. Uh, so the, the internet, you, you kind of had to get dial up where it needed to go. Then you had to get the web browser and then you had to have JavaScript and then suddenly you had to get broadband. But once you had these foundational things in place, then suddenly the Amazons, the Googles and the Facebooks and the YouTubes just emerge. Then they've always been there. They're always great ideas, but they required a certain baseline of infrastructure. And cryptocurrencies are exactly the same. I mean, Bitcoin in its current form, hopefully it'll evolve, but in its current form, just can't do the job. And Ethereum just can't do the job. And we tried to build Cardano to kind of be that last needed generation for the revolution so that it's, it's good enough infrastructure to really take us to this next level. And we can see the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts, just decentralized versions of them, kind of emerging from this uh, this uh, foundation. And you have to build it, as I mentioned, with great partners. And you know, if you're claiming you can solve big problems, go talk to countries that have big problems and go solve those big problems with those countries and show the world that you've actually done it. Now, it might take me 10 years or 20 years to get enough momentum for it, but these people aren't going anywhere. And I'm not going to lose them to Ethereum or EOS or these other platforms because they have no appetite or desire to even play in these jurisdictions. And when they do, they generally do through community groups and they're offering them nothing. And uh, they're offering them no public-private partnership, nothing there. And so I can come in and just basically spend years working my way through it. We achieve this, we wake up, we have a billion users. So, uh, you know, it's uh, we're doing what we need to do on the science and engineering and the community is certainly doing what they need to do. And it's been a privilege just seeing the progress we've made. We've gone from we just showed up in a country. Nobody knows us to we're talking with heads of state and running programs with different ministries and signing MOUs and bidding on uh, pilots as they come through. And that's where we're at today. Within a few years, we'll be basically the back end for the whole social fabric of a country. And uh, once we do one, it'll go to N and we'll be uh, 20 countries and 30 countries. And tell me the barrier to exit there. You know, after we're, we've assembled all the things you think Ethereum is going to come in and displace that. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's there forever. And, and people love it because they understand it. And they also understand it's been built with great, bright principles. Because here's the difference. Our system has governance built in. The competitors generally don't. So when they ask, how does this evolve? Who's going to pay for the evolution of the system? How is it going to change? There's no story other than people over the internet will just come together and figure it out. What we're doing with Voltaire is figuring it out right here today, right now. So uh, it means that when you adopt this infrastructure five years or 10 years from the right now, it's like becoming a citizen where there's a, a strong rule of law and a good constitution. You have rights. 
And even if there's a bad leader, they can't take those rights from you. There's checks and balances in that type of a system. That's, I think, the single most appealing part of the sales pitch. Thank you so much for coming here. I really appreciate your time, um, Charles. And uh, you know, hopefully we'll have you next time when Gogan comes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll see you soon. Cheers. Thank you. This concludes our program today, and uh, thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Slot Leader. If you like the content, please do subscribe to our podcast or share with your friends. Um, we have a lot of interesting things coming down the road, so um, tune in and uh, we will see you next time.